Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, where it's our goal to help you become the best financial advisor possible and drive the positive evolution of financial advice. Hub24 is an ASX-listed company with over $15 billion funds under management and one of the fastest-growing platforms in the market. Neither a bank nor part of a bank, Hub24 focuses entirely on connecting advisors to a broad range of investment solutions for their clients. Discover why other advisors think Hub24 are the best in the market and access the benefits of choice and efficiency for you and your clients with their market-leaning managed portfolio solution. To find out more, visit hub24.com.au. G'day, g'day. How's it going? What do you know? Strike a light. Clayton here uh, with Roger from Blue Path, who I stumbled upon via reputation first. Wow. Yeah. So I was uh, I was in the middle of the XY party tour, the Christmas tour, mm. right? So there we were. I, th- I was in Geelong and um, I'm chatting with a, a bunch of advisors and some of them mentioned you because you are, you know, at, at least according to them, right? Yeah. Was, knew quite a lot about sort of fiduciary and fascia and a lot of this sort of more technical stuff, which I'm a closet nerd for, right? So I love all yeah. this sort of deep and get, get into the weeds. And uh, they were saying, it was super interesting. So we tracked you down and I saw you, you were getting selfies with, you know, um, Stephen, Stephen, at Stephen the, Glenfield. yeah, Glenfield at the, uh, the man at, at the, FBA, at the FBA. I saw you getting selfies. I saw you wrote the yeah. articles <laughs> and I thought I've got to get this man on to chat. So, uh, no, thanks, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So, um, so if we, uh, let's start really high level. What does fiduciary mean? Yeah. And am I even pronouncing it right and what yeah, does it mean yeah, fiduciary fiduciary yeah. fiduciary and, and what does and it I mean i think that word puts off a lot of people you just look at that and it just doesn't give anything away about what it means right yeah so that's just the term that was used historically to describe the relationship where someone's in a position of trust over someone else who's uh, vulnerable the classic was the trustee so you know we all know what trust trustees are they are um fiduciaries for the uh the beneficiaries of the trust right. and uh, other fiduciaries are lawyers, solicitors are fiduciaries and um, also attorneys, of course, enduring powers of attorney are also fiduciaries. Yeah. So, okay. And, and general power of attorney, I guess, as well? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it's essentially, it's a position of power that requires a level of trust. Yeah. Would you say a dentist is a fiduciary? No. Okay. So here's a story. I went to the dentist and they tell me there's something wrong with my tooth. There's no pain. There's no problem. Then they sort of hack around with it and it creates a problem, right? So now I've I've got to go get a a root canal, right? Because um, as far as I was concerned, there was no problem, but now there's a problem isn't that a position of responsibility where I have to yeah, trust them? It's a position of responsibility and they owe you a duty of care. Yes. And they're a professional, so it's a high standard of of being a dentist yes. that they owe you. Uh, so that's uh, a professional duty of care. So they can be you know, sued in negligence. Sure. 
Not uh, not that they will. They're actually fantastic. And they also it. they they also have a certain degree of of uh, confidentiality over your your records, right? They can't tell people your your, your uh, dental records. Yeah. Give those away to anybody. Yes. <clears throat> but they're not they're not actually a fiduciary in the sense that they have to avoid a conflict of interest. But aren't they due to capitalism, um, where if they source a problem, right, then they're paid extra money, right? Oh, so they if, created a problem. Well, not so much if they created a problem because um, there there probably was a problem there. But like, as in, isn't there sort of? And I'm just using this as a yeah, no, it's a good example. one. It's a good one. Yeah. So, um, so, so if, they're, they're, they're fiduciary like doctors and dentists, but actually yeah. in Australia, doctors and dentists have been held. Not to be fiduciaries as such. Okay, interesting. So they don't have to avoid conflicts of interest. Right, which blows my mind because I mean, if they look into someone's mouth and they go, "Actually, this person needs a a, a filling," for example, yeah. you know, they get paid to diagnose that problem. So yeah. they're the one creating the business, oh, okay. and yeah. then they're the ones fulfilling the need. Yeah. So there's I, an element of that in a fiduciary, yeah. But if you think about it, that goes for a lot of businesses. Absolutely, uh, a mechanic. Builders, uh, mechanics, you're yeah. trusting them. Yeah. So there's amount of uh, there's amount of trust there for a a tradie. Yeah. And uh, a lot of things there's amount of trust. And so that's definitely at the heart of my point. So how does fiduciary differ from right. all of those other ones? It differs from all of those ones because um, it's a, a higher level of selflessness required. It's a higher level. Yeah. So you you uh, may not. Uh, be in a conflict of interest and you may not exploit with fees right yeah so like a mechanic or a builder they can agree a fee with you and you're liable to pay it but they're Con- always contractually they're going to find an extra oil leak and you know the the belt needs replacing or whatever right yeah so, so maybe one day they'll be regulated to that they are regulated now right to a high degree but if you agree a price with a builder yes if you if you if you if, uh, if there's no fraud uh there's no misrepresenting on his part there's all sorts of other legal protections in there for you when you're dealing with a mechanic or a builder right okay that, that's and also fair. a dentist and also a doctor because they've got they've got professional obligations to you so doctors and dentists have got a higher level of professional obligations to you than a builder or a mechanic right yes but then you're i guess what you're saying is with this fiduciary responsibility it's even higher than yeah than 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 doctors and dentists yeah wow yeah. that's really interesting so where does it where does it come from what's the history of because, it because what's at stake right let's look at a lawyer if you go to a lawyer that this is very important to you it could be uh representing you in a criminal matter so they want to know that you are out to bat for them only completely devoted to their interests uh, and you're not you have got any, any other things going on which is going to compromise the putting all of your skill all of your devotion to that client that's what you expect from a lawyer right yes. same, same with any kind of lawyer so uh, <clears throat> and it's so sensitive when you're in a combative say commercial situation it's so so sensitive the stakes are so high that you want the assurance that they haven't got any kind of thing going on, which which means they're actually not giving you their all, and there's some suspicion that they're going easy on the other side because of some connection they've got with the other side. Right. So it's been held to be at very high level of um, <clears throat> selflessness, 
and and also so most people don't know the law supposedly right we we don't know the law so we're we're in the hands of someone who could tell us things uh, just lie lie to us if it, you know ultimately we we probably have no way of knowing and I know that's analogous to a doctor but the <clears throat> the combative um, adversarial side that's present in a in the legal um, fiduciary relationship uh, with the on the other side that's the higher stakes well it's really interesting um if you go back to the east dutch india company mm-hmm. and we say okay so that's the birth of the corporate entity you might be able to tell me differently that's as far as i'm aware um but does the fiduciary responsibility go back to a similar time in history uh precedes that Pre- precedes the uh, um wow. the company the limited company but the limited company of course the directors are also fiduciaries. They're fiduciaries to, to the shareholders. Actually, to the company. Huh. Uh, and, and, and then, but not directly to the shareholders. But you say they've got a duty to the shareholders, but actually it's to the company, as, as it happens. Right. That, I mean, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and, and so directors shouldn't be in a conflict of interest either. They get reasonable fees, but also they have to put all their services you know, in, in, uh, in service to the company. So the shareholders know these directors are going into bat for us. That's a really interesting comment because conflicts of interest, if anyone does anything in life and they pull, you know, they bring with them a list of projects that they're a part of and things like that, typically there are conflicts, but then that, yeah. that, that's when sort of that declaration of conflicts on a register and making that public to the board and to the shareholders, that it becomes important at that stage, right? Yeah. So there's conflicts and there's conflicts, right? So if it, right. Uh, that's uh, actually behind a lot of the confusion uh, uh, with this term. So um, there's there's potential conflicts of interest, are things like uh, that, that that aren't re- recognised in law as a conflict of interest. So you know your relatives. So you went to you, you're in a uh, a meeting and you recognise one of the people on the other side of someone that you went to school with. Does mm. that mean there's a conflict of interest? No, you know. So it, we're all connected. Yes. But the so the the law has uh, worked out. Well, what is the conflict of interest? What 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 do we actually need to protect versus what is just a, you know that's a theoretical rather than an actual conflict of interest, right? And then if we tie that back to financial planning, we mm. and financial planners are fiduciary um, and and responsible to the needs of our clients. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Well. So all, all of the jobs the, and these functions are all different, right? So lawyers are going to be different to trustees and so on. So uh, with your financial advisors, you've got, well, you, you can just go through a, a, a simple scenario, right? You go to a financial advisor and you, you're telling them stuff. So you want to know that they are going to keep that confidential. Yes. yes. <clears throat> and so on. Uh, and then when you start uh, telling them uh, information about your your wealth, you're really trusting them, and it could be that they could do something with that, right? So you you, you know that they. It's not just a building job. It's not just giving someone your car. You're really laying open. You could you could have, you know, considerable assets, and they they could that could be useful to them. Mm. They could be able to make something out of that information. So there's that level of trust. And then there's the, well, you've got all the financial markets out there. There's this highly technical area, and I don't know much about it, but I'm putting my 
something big at stake, putting it in your hands. And the recommendations I want you, I'm expecting from you are that it, that it's completely in my best interest that you're serving me. So you are <clears throat> you're not going to put me into a product just because you're getting a fee from that that I don't know about, and that's your real motivation. So that's the conflict of interest. So that's your conflict of remuneration. Okay, so how- most of your financial advisor conflicts are to do with remuneration. Yeah, that makes sense because. I mean, I understand what you mean when you say if you go and start telling everyone what the private details of your clients, right? That's that's a pretty obvious that's a pretty obvious one, right? Sure. And and yeah. you know, but then how if if financial advisors are tied to this fiduciary duty, how did TimberCorp ever exist? How 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 did these how did these um, products that came through how were they ever legal then from well, from a product manufacturer point of view well the product manufacturers they don't owe you a fiduciary duty do they owe a duty to advisors to ensure that advisors are staying within the law no <laughs> really? because advisors aren't vulnerable sure. unknowledgeable people sure. yep i understand in, in principle in principle yeah i understand um okay so there's no responsibility from the product to the advisor well, they've got they've got legal responsibilities, right? They're not not allowed to misrepresent. Sure, oh, they, for they, they, you know the, the, the basics yeah. for sure. But then, from a from 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 this fiduciary duty, is there ever been time in history before, say, FOFA even, where it was technically a no go, but it was just common practice? What do we? What do you mean by no go? Let's talk about um, let's talk about receiving commissions before disclosure oh. of those of those commissions right so uh in the early days um advisors were just earning commissions and it didn't need to be disclosed yeah i mean that went on that was financial planning for many years yeah. so how did that even exist so they're new new boys on the block aren't they financial advisors yes. historically speaking yes trustees have been around for ages yep uh and lawyers have had their duties so yeah, the the um, society's changed and it's become more complex and we didn't used to have financial markets and then we had share markets. And, um, of course, brokers aren't fiduciaries. So was there a time when this was unregulated by the common law? Yes. Wow. Because these things grew up over time through custom. The common law followed business practices. So then in the 1700s you had fiduciary duties recognized at least from then and from uh, trusts so a matter of policy you've got to have trustees who are above board who aren't making a profit out of their role and not serving their the vulnerable beneficiaries so that was established and then you had your solicitors were established uh, under the same principle then financial advisors whenever they started to hold themselves out as independent people who you could trust and the suggestion was, or the, the outright offering was, that they would advise you independently, look out for your interests alone, and we don't have any relationship with the products that we're recommending, then they were fiduciaries. Huh. But the, so, <clears throat> And that's been recognised in Australian law. Uh, of course, I don't know, when was the first financial advisor? When did that grow up? I, I don't know. But as, as soon as... As soon as you ticked a number of boxes where the person was vulnerable and they were clearly relying on you, 
and that person had taken on an independent role of saying, I'm going to advise you independently, then they were a fiduciary. Yeah. So potentially there was a time where advisors were filling that role, but for whatever reason, the common law just didn't didn't cover them somehow. Well, they were, they were covered, but it's a, a lot of it's not adequate because you, what do you do if, if your fiduciary breaches the duties to you, what do you have to do? I have no idea. You've got to go to court, right? Right. And you've got to prove it. Right. So that's been a bit of a problem with the common law in that you've got to, you have to go to court. The aggrieved party has to go to court and prove everything. And if they don't prove any part of it, then they fail. So it's risky. Litigation was risky. Ah. Because it was a simpler time. And, and of course, a lot of this worked by trust and you didn't have to go to court. It was the threat of going to court was there. Yes. But then as things became more complex... Mom and pops started to get into the deregulated financial markets. So the markets were uh, regulated, weren't they? Until then, you know, consumers, Joe Average, didn't go into the market. That's so. It's only when they started going in because oh, this is a great thing that they can go into the markets. Then you had hard luck stories of people who were being ripped off, given bad advice. So there's calls for pr- protection for this. And then uh, we well, can't expect this person who's lost all their money to then have to prove. Um, that they were, there was a breach, and uh, go through all those all that expense. Yeah. Um, so so then you had regulations come in, and the birth of ASIC and FOFA, and the ten years before FOFA, the FISRA, <laughs> um, where where um, there was a requirement for disclosure, so you had to disclose everything. Yes. But, um, so yeah, so the, the the burden's obviously insanely higher than that now. Um, now we have legislated ethics, which is a really really interesting scenario. I think from any profession's point of view, in any country's point of view. So I don't know. I don't know about that. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it's insanely high, an insanely high standard. I think legislation. It's more detailed. Well, yes. Well, uh, but if you think about it, we're actually we're really coming full circle back to the fiduciary principle, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, that, that's that's what that's what we cover in our workshop. You see, uh, why why look at the end product of a complicated corpse act when you when the corpse act is trying to trying to legislate some basic common law principles? Why don't you just learn the common law principles? Then you then you can read the corpse act and understand what it's getting at. Yes. But the Corpse Act was a rules-based approach, and you know globally we're going, we're moving from rules-based tick boxes approach into principles-based, right? Right. So, so we're really going back to principles, if you like, because the common law principles. We've clarified certain areas. So we, what what the Corpse Act was very good uh, about was it? It said this is personal advice for retail clients. So it was a very it was clear demarcation of when you're in, in the gun as a financial advisor. <clears throat> when you have to act for a client's best interest, right, or versus a wholesale client, so that was that was very useful. Uh, but the principles are the same, common law principles. So just learn the common law principles, and uh, it's really hard to say that there's really any particular area where the common law uh, has been significantly exceeded in its level of, of care that's required. So you're uh, so you're saying that which is pretty unique as far as I'm aware, having a legislated ethics. Yeah. 
is probably more in line with our previous form of principle-based common law mm. than uh, the more modern style of tick box corpse yeah. act. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting point of view. I, hadn't, I definitely yeah. hadn't ever considered that. Yeah, yeah. Some, some things are a little, have been clarified, but what, what's in the code of ethics, which is, doesn't have an historical basis at least, or even really a strong historical parallel? That's what I would ask. And I don't really see too much. It's um, in, in, in regards to the, the fascia board. So you have consumers, people on there, you have ethics, mm. people on there, you have uh, you know, industry experts and, mm-hmm. and financial planners. I could imagine that would be a difficult board to run and to get an outcome. Yeah. Um, if you, Do you have an opinion in terms of what you would like to see as a methodology for interacting with advisors and the fascia board it, it, do you do you feel like there could be an efficient and effective way uh, to communicate obviously um steven said uh, when he was on here you can go onto the website right so you can go onto the website yeah. and there's a contact us form essentially and yeah. you can submit via that do you do you feel like that is a an efficient way for the advisor public and yeah, the board well, to what's operate? the feedback been from people who have made submissions I mean, I did make one submission uh, on a couple of minor matters, but uh, I, d- I didn't get the sense that people have been ignored. Uh, Stephen dealt with that in his in his speech at the FPA Congress, if you didn't hear that, and, and in the podcast. So. Yes. Yeah, I found it to be a pretty reasonable character. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I wrote, the, I wrote this article, <laughs> 18 Misconceptions, just, just <laughs> if you can read that through. I mean, but I did try to be brief. Um, <laughs> That's a lot on of LinkedIn, miscon- by the way. There's, for, for those uh, there's a lot of um, misconceptions out there. And, and I, th- I think it's like, uh, it's, it's akin to engineers and um, who, who are building things in accordance with the, the laws of Newton. And <laughs> Pretty you, strict laws, that's one. <laughs> if you don't know what the laws of Newton are and how engineers operate, then so the word comes out, they're going to put a, a, a big tower in the middle of town or they're going to put, a, put the structure over the, the river and you, and you say to yourself, that's never going to work, it's going to fall over and, and you know, death and destruction and everything's going to go wrong. Uh, and then, <laughs> then you learn to trust. Well, engineers actually follow some, some established principles. Yeah. That, uh, that, that they actually, it'll be okay. Don't worry, it'll be okay. But you, you can't really satisfy people until the, <laughs> the bridge is there and it's been there for 10 years. Uh, so the, co- the common law and these principles were developed by you know, genius jurists of, our, of the common law. Yeah. Uh, they, they really suss these things out and they've proved... Uh, very robust, and uh, they haven't been tampered with. So this fiduciary, fiduciary concept is, is one that's become it's uh, very, very robust. So it's pre- it's protecting the consumer, yes, but not at the expense of the advisor. There's a there's a balance struck, and the the payoff is trust. Yes, which is what we're looking for. That's what you're looking for. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting in terms of the the, the 18 misconceptions oh, yes. right <laughs> I, I keep thinking there should definitely what's that name of the film it's like you know the eight things i hate about you or whatever like that you know 10 things i hate yeah, about it's you all, it's always a round number isn't yeah, it yeah. exactly oh. so the 18 misconceptions um one of them was uh or, or at least you you sort of address this where 
One, I mean, one of the big things, and it is a big thing, and I completely understand this, is that advisors are scared of being litigated against, and your article sort of goes to some, um, to some extent to to say uh, lawyers like to be consistent. Yeah, and it was lawyers that helped write this, and so they haven't written it to open it up to right to 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 liability. So yeah. Can you sort of duck into that a little bit? Because that's a key part of why yeah. advisors are, are, have been yeah. scared yeah, it's, about it's a bit this. like the engineers being constrained by Newton's laws. Uh, <laughs> right. So lawyers aren't, they're not taught to be creative. They're taught what the law is and the principles of it. Yeah. And so they, it gets programmed into them. So they don't really depart from that. They, they clarify it and they might fill in a gap. Yes. That because... Society's changed somewhat, so there's something needs to be elaborated upon. But it's bits, bits informed by the principle, historic principle. There's not much new in law; it's very conservative, and lawyers are wanting to uh, wanting to be consistent with that. So the the code of ethics is consistent with the law. It, it, <laughs> that committee did not sit down and come up with a whole lot of ethics out, out of the blue. I, th- I think they've. It's written by lawyers. That code of ethics is written by lawyers. It's consistent with the common law. So relax. Right. ASIC came out mm. and have offered to fill in some gaps as, as in terms of it was, it actually came out the day that I interviewed Stephen, um, where they said for any shortfalls or misunderstandings, we're happy to sort of play a role in helping to explain mm. some of this. Can you give any more context to that press release? I thought they said that they were they would so th- their territory is licensees. Yes. So wasn't it about licensees? They're, yes. they're saying in terms of the licensees, we're going to support licensees in uh, achieving these outcomes. Yeah, correct. Uh, and because being a little through bit through relevant providers. Yeah. 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 So uh, I think what I thought what they were saying is. That the the code of ethics is aimed at advisors. So to the extent, though, that those uh, objectives need to be <clears throat> will need some licensees to cooperate with that, then we'll be in favour of of supporting the licensees. Sure, that's what I thought. Now, how are you with getting uh, put on the spot in terms of direct questions that I know advisors are still asking? Because this mm. was so. Let me know if this sort of if you have an opinion on this or not. Um, this is still a question that that's getting asked, and and I know some licensees are agreeing and some are disagreeing. But one of the one of the things that Steve and I discussed was referral fees, right? Mm-hmm. So if you send business to Company B and your Company A, and if Company B pays the advisor directly, it looked to be a conflict. But if the the Company B paid the referral fee to Company A, and then this then the advisor as an employee, earned an additional revenue due to other aspects and there wasn't a direct line, um, then it was potentially fine. It's not fine. It's still not fine. No, no, it's, 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 that's not fine it, because the employee relevant provider is receiving conflicted remuneration because because their remuneration, uh, they're receiving a bonus or volume-based remuneration that that's dependent on the referral to company A, right? But but as for so that that's that's consistent. That's ne- that hasn't even changed really because that's the conflicted remuneration ban. Yeah, uh, which Hain, Commissioner Hain, um, 
approved of in in the report in the royal commission report so we should talk about that the yeah. commission report the effects of that uh, but as for payments between a company a and b well the code of ethics doesn't apply to the uh that relationship yeah it so, only applies to the relevant provider, otherwise yeah. known as an advisor. Yeah, but that could be still a conflicted remuneration under the Corps Act. Hmm. It's just that the, the Code of Ethics has only got scope as, as applying to advisors. Yeah, so it's, it, there's nothing really, a, there's no big loophole there as far as I can see. Mm. Yeah, it's a tricky one because then, you know, how, how deep does a JV relationship have to extend yeah. to be able to not be a referral fee but rather a sharing of business yeah so this is the practicality thing like everything's a conflict in some way but we're all earning yeah. we all have to make a crust in some Correct. way so so you're, you're drawing a reasonable line on on what a client would feel is not on sure in terms of backhanders that they don't know about yeah, it's and and I I fully understand the purpose of mm. it, right? I fully understand that um, you you want to stop, you know, advisors being able to do the classic sort of stick them all in SMSF, pump it full of the the off the plan uh, properties that you know the, the same. So I absolutely understand the concept of what it's trying to solve. Um, it's that's the piece that I no one disagrees with. It's mm. the piece that your mate that shares a table in the office with you that you've worked for 20 years with and he does a great job with your clients and he, he gets mortgages um, for a really good price and yeah it's it's stuff like that that, uh, that unfortunately just doesn't really cut the mustard so to speak mm. um, I'm not sure what you mean there so, so so for example let's say I was a financial planner you're a mortgage broker mm. we share a, an office together mm. and for the last 20 years you've got my clients really good mortgages and taking care of them and made me look fantastic as an advisor and together we've looked after hundreds of advisors yeah. um but you're in a different business but we're in a different business yeah, yeah. i'm i'm ab financial planning is your cd mortgage broking yeah um but yeah that that's seen as a conflict to me that's just yeah that well, if, I, if, I, I feel if like the that cli- if the client's paying that if paying the fee then that's excluded from conflicted remuneration. So it's only the it's only the the secret commissions, the backhanders, yeah, that are being outlawed here. So your your, your client gets referred to me as a mortgage broker. I do that. And by the way, his fee, uh, Roger's fee, is a uh, hundred dollars. Uh, so you're charged that. And, ah, and, and so that's that's not so conflicted if remuneration. It's, if it's declared, if the you are de- paying it, right? So if you declare to my client that I'm getting twenty percent of that money then we're all above board yeah and on, on, on the invoice that goes to them on the invoice. Uh, that's a line item which says what well, the payment that they're making to me in effect doesn't have to be sure strictly directly to me yes as long as they're paying it. i understand and would that still be the case if it was a commission earned via the mortgage no yeah i don't okay. think so that's tough so, so it's. I mean, it's, that's. I guess they're the them. Those situations that I'm describing. It's compromise. It's a compromise. I mean, you, let's say take. Let's take it back to your dentist example. Yes. Um, you're in the dentist. He says you've got a problem here. I need to send you to a specialist. Yes. Uh, so refers you to the specialist and uh, doesn't tell you that he, he's getting five percent. Right. Now you, you, that would be not. That wouldn't be on, would it? 
Well, I, I don't doubt that it happens. No, I don't know. They don't get anything. They don't get anything? No. Okay. No, they can't get that. That's unethical. So you want to know that the referral to that specialist is completely in your interests. I'm not, I'm not tainted with this uh, relationship here. I, I send people to, to someone who I don't actually think is very good, but they, uh, I'm, I'm getting 5%. So. <laughs> well, yeah. So there's, there's, no, there's no specialist get a kickback like that. Doctors don't get a, a kickback for referring you to surgery, right? Mm. Lawyers don't get a kickback from the barrister. You refer sure. you to okay. these things are above board. So that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. what you will bring it into that, that sphere. I mean, I mean, myself personally as an advisor, I, I didn't do any sharing of payment. I, right. Yeah. It, um, and I know a lot of advisors that don't. Um, yeah, it's in it's still I, I know I've I, got a lot of sympathy for I, I really because I, I I went I I was advised many years ago I, I started say I wasn't saving any money <laughs> spending my money and they said why don't you go into this product and um, put in this much per month of your salary and and I didn't ask what they were getting they didn't charge me anything but I knew they were getting something but I didn't really I didn't really sure. wasn't really interested I, yeah. I, I didn't mind yeah uh, that's just the way it went but that that's a it's a an easy example isn't it where it's not really a problem and i i was happy to pay them out of my earnings because i guess i guess it felt like i wasn't paying them anything because yeah. i never saw it so it's, yes. a, it's one of these fallacies of thinking fallacies right cognitive yeah. uh, fallacies so uh, but but actually it's not really fair is it that uh, i i was not being told I've since been told you'd be amazed what they were getting. Uh, really, oh, I didn't run away. <laughs> but it, it got me saving. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, so essentially, kick. You know, if you call them kickbacks, that has been the way that this industry has run right from for so long. From a product to licensee level, to a licensee to an advisor level, to an advisor to other professions level. It's it's mm. almost like. Um, every it, it's how the business has been run, mm. um, and even now, still to this day, there there is um, insurance commissions, right? So an, an insurance advisor will still get a commission based on the yeah. insurance that 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 they declare. Um, walk me through how an insurance commission is still allowed under this fiduciary. Well, duty. it was a carve out, wasn't it? And uh, uh, insurance. Insurance salespeople were not fiduciaries; they were agents of the insurance company. So they weren't fiduciaries; they weren't financial advisors. When was this decided? Well, they've never been. They weren't historically. I can tell you right now yeah. that insurance planners consider themselves financial advisors for sure. And oh, they, well, these days, yes, yes, yeah, these days. Uh, so, but they they pleaded um, to to the FOFA inquiries right they, they said we're, we're an exception because we've always operated this way yeah right? so and they they got an exception but uh the uh the commissions have been regulated and equalized right yeah so they're, they're all standard that's fair. so that that that's taken out the the temptation to recommend one product over another yeah yeah it was kind of it was it's a little bit crazy i remember um it's kind of interesting because I got into financial advice via tax accounting. Uh-huh. And so I was very used to meeting with people. They pay a fee. It's all, you know, la-di-da. Uh, and then I went to uh, Dixon Advisory. And back in the day, that was quite a good name. And um, 
uh, sort of spent a, a year there and I was in the SMSF sort of SIS team. Was just, so we only really dealt with the uh, advice, didn't touch the investments and didn't touch insurance. And so it was all fee-for-service. And um, I remember learning about commissions. Oh, and I guess I was maybe like in my fifth year of working in finance in one way or another. Hmm. And I remember it was kind of weird because I was, I was like, okay, so rather than just charging a fee, you get someone to pay for something else and then they pay you. Hmm. Um, it was kind of a, coming at it from a, a, a long way around rather than getting brought up into it. It was actually... It was a mindset that I had to get my head around right. to, to start doing rather than um, it being a natural and easy part. And, yeah. and so I, I definitely think the new advisors that are coming through that aren't exposed to commissions in any way, I don't think are really going to struggle with it. I think it's mm. sort of normal. Um, but with the insurance commission, I told, I've always found it to be an interesting thing because I totally understand the counter argument which is well who's going to pay for mm. someone to do their insurances and i'm sure there would be some level mm. of people that were doing it but it's such an unenjoyable topic <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. and, and we talk about the fallacies before logical fallacies mm. this may not be a logical fallacy but you could call it for lack I of think, a better term I think it an is, emotional it's, it's one of those cognitive yeah. fallacies yeah yeah uh, where, where, where people just don't want to yeah i think they call it the, the, it the maths accounting fallacy right where so people have an account that they the, the college account sort of thing um or the uh, the holiday account so they won't touch that oh, but man. meanwhile they're in they're in racking up credit card debt so yeah. it's, it's it's irrational it's highly irrational but you don't want to touch that uh, and people would rather pay something and 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 then a cut comes out of that that they don't really know about rather than have to actually hand over the cash for a service. You yeah. can understand that, yeah. yeah. So, but there were, the insurance objections are really based on when you say, well, who's going to pay for that? Well, it's, they're paying for it anyway, right? So they want It's just a different not. way of paying for it, which was, Commissioner Hayne has said that he wants, <laughs> wants everyone to, to charge like that because that's how everybody else gets charged in the world. We've kind of reached a consensus that you charge for your time and your skill yeah. based on, if not time, then some kind of tangible reward. Let, let's stuck into that because you mentioned before we should um, uh, sort of bring it up. Yeah. So Commission Hain, you've got the Royal Commission. What were your takeouts? Yeah, well, the, the point I wanted to make on that because there's a lot of, a lot of takeouts, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the point I wanted to make there uh, is that um, – so he, he what did what did he say when he reviewed all the the terrain? What did he say? He said he said he finds conflicted remuneration ban is it's okay. He thinks it's, it's aimed at the right things. It's just all the exceptions he wants phased out. So the 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 idea of um, payments not influencing your product recommendations one over the other. He thinks that's a good idea. So Fazio have read the commission report right, and they're saying. Well, we how do we preserve that? That's mm. been approved, so hence in standard seven we have the, the have the accept um, as specified in the Corps Act. So the that ban has been preserved. So uh, he's all, Commissioner has also said he doesn't like conflicts of interest. 
that's not working, the, the band's not working. So what what does Vassia do? They put on a conflict of interest prohibition, but at the same time they need to preserve the conflicted remuneration ban. And 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 also so the things that conflicted remuneration doesn't ban have to not be conflicts under the code of ethics. What is, what does that mean? Well that means that payments are okay if they're not conflicted remuneration. Right. So and and so what the, what they've gone into and just added to this though, so Commissioner Haynes said there's still a conflict even if you if even with the conflict of remuneration ban there's still a conflict of interest, which hasn't been effectively prohibited. Which is there's a the temptation to recommend a change or a positive action rather than do nothing. Yes. Rather than stick with the yep. course of action. So yep. the conflict of remuneration doesn't doesn't address that problem. Yeah. So uh, what FASIA have had to do is they want to ban conflict a uh, ban conflicts of interest but preserve conflict of remuneration. Uh, and the things that aren't conflicted remuneration. So they've, they've really expl- uh, they've already gone into well, and this is lawyers have done this. What is it that conflicted remuneration is really banning? And what it's banning is the a, any sort of payment which is, creates a temptation that that a disinterested outside observer would reasonably say is likely or could induce a breach of the best interest duty. So they just rephrased this. And it looks complicated, and then their latest guidance, they've got a page and a half on that. On that. And then they're finished off with, and by the way, no recommendations which are clearly uh, not reasonable compared to sticking with the, the existing course of action or doing nothing. So, Yeah, because obviously traditionally one of the problems has been if someone's in a low-cost ETF, like a low-cost, say, industry super fund, and, and, you know, they've got less than $100,000 and and someone's recommending an SMSF or something like that. Um, I wish they'd kind of, like, call out the more problematic scenarios. Oh, yeah. Like what I just mentioned. So... um, if you're recommending, uh, actually, I believe that there has been a minimum stuck uh, or a clear. Well, they've got like thirty examples in their October guidance, right? That, as he's put in, so you know, if you write to them, they might put one in. Okay, yeah, that's a really good point. Well, so, what, what is the what is that case? That well, about? yeah, I mean, just moving into self-managed super funds a little bit too aggressively. Yeah. You know that 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 that's a that's a clear one. Um, putting people into you know, property that from an investment company that you or that that the that the financial planning company has a, has an association with or an ownership yeah. in, you know, th- those kind of ones are the um, are the well, really one, easy one ones. of the uh, case studies in the in the code of ethics explanatory statement uh, was an SMSF sort of train wreck. Yeah, you read those. Yes, the, that's why they're now saying sort of yeah. closer to five hundred thousand where. Traditionally, it was around two hundred thousand dollars to recommend an SMSF. I've seen five hundred thousand right. get mentioned quite a bit more right, recently. Right. Um, so, um, without sort of you know going into detail into the stuff that you talk about at your workshops, um, one of the things that I've paid attention to in terms of you know financial advisors, uh, especially on the XY platform, is a lot of people love to get training 
right? And I was actually talking about it with someone just at lunch. They said, do you think a lot of people are going to leave by the end of the year with the test? And I said, well, the test is, you know, it's got a pretty high pass rate. And I'm sure if you do a little bit of training, um, there's an even higher chance that that you'll get through. But say 2024 in in regards to doing a a degree, I I think that's, we'll we'll definitely see a a large, even in the XY uh, community, which... I think is two thirds, mm. give or take, um, our, from what we can tell, probably around two thirds of people have a degree, which is higher than the, the general um, advice population. But still, that's one third of people that need to still get a degree. And, and we, we have no idea as to whether that's even a, an appropriate degree. So mm. I think probably in the next couple of years, we'll see, it, we'll, I think that will have a bigger drop off. But do you think there should be advisors out there that are leaving because of the FASIA exam? Well, not because of the FASIA exam, no. No. Yeah. Uh, and like, like you say, I think you can cram for it. You can do a course. Uh, and if what, what I've uh, observed through our participants is that the, the older, more experienced advisors, they actually know this stuff. They they do consider the broad long-term interests of their clients because... They've been they, living it. They've, they've been, been living, living it. They, yeah, yeah, they've been living with the repercussions and they have amazing relationships with their clients. And uh, so, and they, they uh, I think we all agree that people who don't have the life experience, I mean, how do you do that? How do you ask someone, that, what, what are you going to do? What do you want to do? Have you thought yeah. about what happens if you die? I don't know. These are really very confronting questions, and uh, they are they're more experienced, older advisors. They've they've done it, so they yeah. kind of learned how to do it, if you like. So it's a yeah. it's a tough job. It's a tough job, and I think you can parallel it again to other professionals where you you got to learn at the foot of somebody else and learn the questions they ask and so on. What was the question again? <laughs> well, uh, the degrees? Think, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah. first of all, do you I, think I, anyone I, should leave because of the exam? And then, do you? And what do you think will happen? So, with, look, with the, look, if you, if if you can't pass the exam by doing the reading, doing a course like ours, um, then you know, you should be able to pass it. You should you should pass it. The feedback I've got is that the exam is actually not bad. Yeah, it's it's it, it does. Uh, it's, it's got a, a good correspondence with with what it's supposed to be asking, um, and uh, so it's it's fair. Uh, that, that's what I've heard. So, uh, and the code of ethics isn't really such a. It's hard to fault it, really. Unfortunately, you have to have to learn all the disclosure stuff, which came in two thousand and one. And then you've got to learn FOFA because this is all in, still in place under the Corps Act, and you have to learn. So that's made it a bit more difficult. But mm. um, yeah, there's a lot of regulation, um, but the, you, you can you, you can learn it. Yeah. As for degrees, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't know why this might be a bit controversial, but no one's been able to explain to me why you have to do uh, an ethics course in addition to this FASIA exam. I, I don't know why you, why you have to do that. Lawyers don't have to study ethics. Yeah, they they, they do they do an exam, uh, but they're not studying the theory of ethics. You know, the deontological theory versus utilitarian. Yeah. Uh, why do we have to do that? In, in fact, it's it's actually all in the common law. <laughs> you know, so 
I, 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 I don't understand that, but maybe someone will explain it to me. Um, where do you see advice in, let's say, five years from now? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, th- I think it'll be a, um, I, I think everyone will be passing through and there'll be increasing levels of trust. I, I, I do. And uh, I think people will be marketing themselves with confidence and, and providing value and you'll be doing well. That's what I think, yeah. Because yeah. as far as I'm aware, there's all super funds coming available, money coming available. Uh, no one, no one else can advise you. It's it's legal, right? It's not like you have competition. You don't. It's a it's a closed shop. If you're advising, giving financial advice, then you have to do this, and no one else can do it. So people do need financial advice. You know, if I if I won the lottery, <laughs> yeah. I'd go to a financial advisor. If my wife wasn't a financial advisor, <laughs> is your wife a financial planner? <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Please tell me yeah. she passed the... Uh, she passed, yeah. She said pass. So she's my... Uh, we, we co-present the workshop. So, Fantastic. Yeah, so she brings that perspective and I bring the ethics law perspective. Well, you know, to, mm. to, to wrap up our conversation, tell us about what you got going on. Like, uh, what, I yeah, mean, we, you... we run a day-long workshop yep. um, covering all the FASIA curriculum, uh, including practice questions from the FASIA exam. And we equip people to pass the exam. Yeah. Awesome. What's the uh, what's the website? Bluepath.com.au. And it's all there. You can register on there. We run uh, workshops in the major centers in the weeks leading up to each exam um, wave. Well, like I said, yeah. I heard uh, really good things before I ever had the chance to meet you oh, and then read about much. what you were doing online and then seeing the... Uh, the selfies so uh <laughs> make congratulations on the impact that you've already had on the industry and uh, yeah let's uh let's stay in touch thanks thanks very much cheers, cheers.